How can I get how people I to listen right to career? my idea? How can I learn better? How do I choose the right career? How do I choose where to live? How do I have a great holiday? How can I get off, how can I get off my how phone? How do I need an awkward conversation? This is the Behavioural Vaccine Podcast. With Porg Walsh, a behavioural scientist who rarely behaves himself. And Kate Feeney, also a behavioural scientist and a comedian, apparently. Each week we tackle the big and the little questions in life using behavioural science. We hope you enjoy. So for our... HPM Plus content, what we have is invited back one of our favourite guests from the behavioural vaccine uh, episode so far. So we we didn't, Kate wasn't really allowed to come onto this podcast. I suppose the last time we had Mark James on with us, Kate was starry-eyed and and enthralled by Mark and was, I suppose, (laughs) really hijacking the whole conversation. Kate was like that. With her, with her wonderment of Mark's knowledge. So Kate's sitting this one out, but I'm delighted to have Mark back joining us again. Uh, Mark, you're welcome back onto the behavioral vaccine. Thanks, thanks for having me, Mark. Yes. So the last time we talked, Mark, you you were, were explaining to us around your model for habit change, and you called it eco behavioral design. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So talk me through this entire process again. For those of you that have been listening, uh, you'll have listened to the first two two elements that Mark talked about. But for those of you that haven't, we're going to go through the entire process from start to finish. Okay. So okay. So um, eco behavioral design is really a kind of framework or maybe a practice for thinking about the how of behavior change. You know, we're all familiar or a lot of us are familiar with wanting to change. And we're also familiar with a lot of the struggles of, say, um, endeavoring upon a particular change and then, uh, you know, meeting the almost inevitable challenges that those kind of efforts present. And eager behavioral design is a means for, I suppose, framing and thinking about that approach to change that, gives you a bit of confidence in terms of how you should approach that and is effectively a set of skills um, that you acquire through the practice of actually undergoing some sort of effort to change that allow you thereafter to make change a bit more easily. Um, So I can go through, there's a couple of phases in that or do you want to jump in or... Yeah, no, no. You, I, the floor is yours, Mr. James. Um, Mark, you you described it so well in these four different phases. And naturally enough, Kate was enthralled. I was enthralled, but I tried to play it cool when we were listening to you the last time. But really what you were talking about is the fundamentals of habit change and how that, w- w- the different stages and the way that you look at it. And I liked your analogies around this and I liked the framework that you had adopted. So... Off you go. <laughs> right, right. So I sh- I'll start with a bit of the kind of philosophical frame just to give a sense of that without getting too technical. But this this whole approach emerges from a particular, say, frame or position within a cognitive, cognitive scientific perspective that wants to acknowledge, um, say, behavior as a kind of relational um say a feature of a relationship between a body and an environment right so it wants to move away from the idea of the the individual person as this uh, atomistic individuated perfectly separate thing and see it as a see us or see the person as something 
always embedded in the environment, always situated, always in relationship to, say, the things that exist therein. No and man see, is an island. <laughs> so, yeah. No man is an island, exactly. And to see behavior as a means by which, say, the person or the embodied subject uh, regulates the relationship with their environment, right? So it's always this relational uh, understanding. Um, and that means that we move away from the idea of motivation or discipline or will, right? We often think, well, why haven't I changed or why can't I make this change? And we reflect and, you know, our, our kind of, say, introspective reflection seems to suggest something about, well, you just didn't try hard enough or that kind of thing. And the kind of implication here will be that actually those introspective, say, reflections aren't a very good indicator of actually the kind of whole set of processes that are actually involved, right? That's just a kind of... You're talking about the Tony Robbins approach to to this, that if you if you find yourself on bad times, you have you haven't tried hard enough or you you always right. have this. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I, I'm not I'm not Tony Robbins biggest, biggest, but that that kind of you know, really strong motivational approach that if you try hard enough, if you really want it, you'll get it. Um, yeah. yeah, I think there's so there's something to be said for motivation, right? Or even someone like Tony Robbins, right? He, I often think of the likes of that as as a kind of an acute perturbation, right? It's like somebody up so much just by their words and by their say presentation or whatever by the things that they're saying that it can be for some people enough to say engender a change it can be say something that's sufficient enough of an impact on the system that it kind of pushes you over the, the threshold that you needed to be pushed over to make that change happen but for most of us most of the time we get excited we hear that stuff and then it fades out of our memory very very quickly and then actually we feel worse right because now we have a sense of well i should have changed i obviously didn't want it enough and then you start to feel guilty or you lose hope or you know some other thing creeps in in the back of that whereas the eco behavioral design um approach you're you're start you're starting to move away from the idea of you at you as the only thing that's important here and and start to see your embedding in a particular environment and your behavior as a reflection of that right and that I think can help and it's certainly my experience and some of the people I've worked with can help um, say dissipate uh, some of those feelings of guilt or shame or the lack of hope that often accompanies a kind of failure of sort, right? You you go about setting your resolutions, um, your resolutions don't come to pass, and then you have this, you know, deepening of this identity as you as somebody who's not capable of making the changes that you would like to make. Right? So you end up in this weird space of, okay, I know I want to make a change, I can't make it, and you kind of get hopeless and maybe start to maybe get a bit despondent about the possibility of changing at all. Whereas um, the eco behavioral design uh, perspective says we're always changing, right? We're always changing. How can we harness that, say, that fact that we're always changing and start to move things in a particular direction for, I suppose, for ends that we desire? Um, so yeah, I mentioned that that we em emphasize relationality, and by emphasizing that, we can dissipate some of that guilt and shame and so on. But the process itself has a kind of four phase, um, four phases, I guess, in the process. When I 
at least as we lay it out and think about it. And now it's messy and it always comes back to, you know, some interaction between the phases and there is iterations. But I'll go through. Do you think that'll be helpful to go through? That'll be those really phases? good. This is the gold dust. <laughs> this, is, this is why you're here to talk us through these phases because we because so many of us me like so many others um are intrigued by human behavior and intrigued by habit and why we fail and we hear this fail better how to fail well what does failure mean and why can't i make the changes that i wish to make despite all the knowledge that i have what is it about my environment or myself or my the interaction between myself and my environment that are that lead to me not achieving what I want to achieve? Because so many of us have goals. So many of us know what we want to do or what we should do, um, but we haven't yet established those habits that we know will will help us. Um, so this is where I think your model of eco behavioral design becomes really, really interesting because we, we've talked about this off air and I just find it really intriguing and I think it's very accessible and it's very applicable. And what I really like about it is it's very, very forgiving. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's an important part, right, because there's all sorts of weird complexes that creep in when we do feel about our own inability to make a change and often that can you know as i said before reaffirm an identity that we already have that maybe starts to act as some sort of barrier to actually making that change um so yeah i'll talk through the each of the phases and you jump in if you need clarification or if i'm skipping over something a bit too quickly or whatever the case may be sounds great to me i'll be like the case that isn't here <laughs> so um phase one right uh, i'll just i'll name the phases so we have four phases we have a distillation phase we have a design phase we have a propagation phase and we have a planting out phase and in each of these we're kind of i suppose clarifying certain skills if you will that allow us to make change and then we have a kind of once we've acquired this we have in a sense a kind of master system right for making changes uh, it's not foolproof, but it works a lot of the time for most people. And I should preface this with like change is a difficult thing, but if we can simplify it and make it simple for ourselves, we can actually start to um, embody a sense, our own sense of how we change. Right. So it's always individual. It's always very complex in that sense. And there's no easy prescriptions, but um, some of these things are, in a sense, universal. So I, that's why I, I think they are valuable. So the distillation phase um, sets out by looking at a, an outcome that we say desire. Maybe it's something off in the future, a goal of sorts. And it uh, kind of queries into, okay, how do I make this outcome into something that's a bit more tractable, that I can kind of get my head and my hands around and um, make some effort towards? And the first first say element in the phase the distillation phase is this distillation from what i call well from the outcome into what i call a vital behavior so that's asking okay if i have this outcome that is say for instance um you know i want to be i don't know mobile in my body right mm -hmm. it asks okay if that's my outcome can I distill that into some set of behaviors, which if carried out over time 
will just naturally lead to that as a kind of second order effect or just a you know that 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 is just the consequence of doing this set of behaviors over over time consistently so you go from outcome to vital behaviors in that instance you might say okay what is it that actually leads to having a mobile body right so you might say okay well i need to stretch or do mobility exercise every day so straight away you're kind of going okay all of a sudden now i'm not based in say or judging my actions on on whether or not i am mobile but you're saying i'm judging my actions on whether or not i'm showing up every day and engaging in a vital behavior this is something you emphasize very much and you emphasize it on the podcast this idea of showing up right that 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 you really emphasize this idea of showing up that right. that's the the kickstart for any vital behavior i think the idea of showing up as i'm speaking about it here is that um we can in a sense distill so there's a kind of right there's a kind of a, a paradox of control right we've only control over so much and we certainly can't control our future at a longer term or a longer time scale right so i can't guarantee that something in 10 months time is going to come to pass so you have to kind of tighten the circle of control in a sense and say okay what can i do what is reasonably within my control and the idea of showing up kind of falls within that, right? It's like, well, I can show up every day and do the thing that might have that outcome over the longer term. And, you know, there's some reasonable, say, evidence because people have done this in the past to suggest that if I do that thing every day, that'll lead to, certain out to a certain outcome. Um, <clears throat> so that's the, the first phase of distillation, right? You go from outcome to vital behavior. But then this may be the most important um, aspect of the whole process is going from it's a kind of second pass if you will in the distillation phase it's going from vital behavior to what i call a seed habit and okay. a seed habit is is effectively a distillation of the vital behavior right if i just show up every day and start smashing out my mobility routine which you know i've decided is it's going to it's going to take me 40 minutes a day and if i do that 40 minutes every day for a year i'll have the mobility i want to have um committing to that as we all know right is painful is hard and it's by and large something we don't do um <clears throat> and we don't do it because it works i mean there's a whole philosophical background for why it works against right our efforts to change but we don't need to understand that but what we can understand is say the inverse of that what actually does work what allows us to change so i talk about a seed habit and the idea with a seed habit is that you want to make the vital behavior or some version of that behavior as small as possible tiny i, I said last time you know embarrassingly small i've almost. used that term four or five times in my work since you said it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah and and not just in working in in everyday conversation i absolutely love it I love the term make your seed habit embarrassingly small that yeah. that has such resonance there. It gives you such it's so permissive, I think, that it gives you the permission to make the seed habit embarrassingly small. And you said that it shouldn't feel like there is any change happening at all at the start. It should be something that that's still comfortable for you. Yeah. And I think this is key, right? I mean, ultimately, what I will suggest is that 
these small changes lead to larger kind of changes in our in our identity right so the the habit feeds into and constructs and helps construct a different identity but that happens over time but we don't even notice that right we don't have to work into that what we do is show up every day with our seed habit right so in the case of the mobility that might be something i mean like i said embarrassingly small it might be literally okay i'm going to show up for the first couple of weeks and all i'm going to do is a 10 second squat right and you know you're kind of going uh is that going to do anything right and you know my answer there is it's not going to do anything with respect to your mobility and that's not what we're concerned about right at this phase it's going to do a lot for your ability to commit to a new route a new behavior and it's going to do a lot for your ability to change, right? Because your outcome is no longer um, mobility as such. Your outcome is the shorter term outcome. Am I showing up every day and committing to this vital behavior? So when that's your outcome, you're getting a very different sort of feedback. You know, if if the feedback is, am I getting more mobile? I mean, even if you're showing up every day for 40 minutes and doing your, you know, your hardcore practice, you might still not be getting very close to your outcome of being more mobile. You're not going to notice it at the start. You're not going to be able to reinforce yourself by saying, yeah, I'm getting closer and closer to my outcome. If it's one 365th of that outcome, you're not going to notice it because one day out of a full year or seven days is one 50 tooth of that, you know, I don't know what's it was, one 50 tooth, uh, 50 seconds, one, yeah. But it's a very, very small percentage of what your outcome is. But if you're trying to find ways to reinforce yourself, to reward yourself for just showing up, you're starting to build that behavior momentum already. Yes. And that is that is, in a sense, the kind of vital ingredient, right, that starts to feed back in. Because once you start to see yourself as able to make change, right, that becomes part of a larger identity. And that starts to inform and give you confidence and suggest, oh, well, if I can make this small change and I can make it consistently and I can commit to it, well, then maybe I can build upon that. Right. And you've already got a little tool there for saying, OK, well, I need I know something now. I know that when I engage a behavior change, um, if I make it small, it's going to be easier. Now, there are exceptions to this. Right. Maybe if you join a group, um, already do something and you want to participate in that it can be different. Or maybe you just are the kind of person, right, who needs a big thing to commit to and are really good at chasing that down. Um, and if that is the case, you know, by all means, go ahead. You probably don't need my um, advice at all. But most of us, most of the time, aren't those people. And um, we still want to make these kind of changes. And, you know, these changes can accumulate, say, if you change a couple of say very key or cornerstone habits or key sorry keystone habits they accumulate into a a life that is maybe more healthy or more engaged or more i don't know politically active whatever it is that you actually want to pursue um so that's that's in a sense uh the kind of basics of phase one but i should say why i talk about the seed habit a bit more because i think it's an important analogy um so first of all like when we think of a seed right and we think of the success of a seed and it's sprouting or whatever. Um, we already think about it in relationship with its environment. So if we ask, what does a seed need? Well, a seed needs 
shelter, needs soil, needs water, needs light. When we think about ourselves and our habits in these terms, we're already acknowledging, okay, it's not just will, it's not just me and my motivation, it's not just, you know, the, the, the psyching myself up to do this. It's saying, okay, what are the conditions within which um, this seed habit can take root and thereafter grow? And, you know, having that in mind is also valuable because, as you said, it's a bit permissive, right? It's, it's suggesting mm-hmm. that it's not it's not all sh- shame, right? If 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 the sh- if the seed um, doesn't plant, we don't think, oh, there's something wrong with that seed, right? We think, oh, we didn't give it enough water, or we didn't give it enough light, right? We already have these understandings intuitively, right? Um, so that's that really whole f- that whole uh, gardening phenomenon and phase that everyone went through at the start of lockdown kind of bypassed me but i'll take your word on it that the (laughs) the seedling the seed needs i know from science from biology it needs water light good soil and good temperature and and i think what you're saying is that we're just the seedling here our habit is just that 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 seedling and our willpower is is part of that as well but everything around us then starts to help that to to sprout and to flourish yeah and this kind of leads us on to the to the next phase right so we've thought about the seed habit we need to make it small you know the seed habit is a reflection of the vital behavior which is going to lead to our outcome over time um so the next phase is the design phase right and in this phase we're kind of asking okay what are the conditions what is the environment how can we manipulate that and our relationship to that uh, to better support the seed, right? To situate or locate the seed in a way that's optimum for its um, development. So there I have the three C's and I talk about uh, cornerstones, constraints and chains, and I can walk through each of them mm. quickly. So the cornerstone is effectively any existing, say, stable enough pattern in your life so that could be an existing habit it could be a time you wake up it could be um something that just anything that just happens every day within your existence or relatively reliably within your existence so i mean classic one might just be say you get out of bed every day right so you can talk about you can think about using these cornerstones as not just prompts you know insofar as they're going to remind you that you need to do something but um a bit like if we go back to the garden metaphor right a bit like an existing structure in the environment that's going to help something else grow right so like um maybe a cornerstone in a, a garden is something like a wall right um, and if you plant the seed next to the wall, it's going to support it and so on. Right. So mm-hmm. if we have these existing stabilities in our life, we can use them as kind of leverage points or introduction points to introduce the seed habit. So in the case of the mobility, we might be saying something like, OK, OK, I, I've got my seed habit. It's you know as simple as it possibly could be. I'm just going to do like a squat for 10 seconds every day. Well, then the next thing we have to okay when when are we going to do that or uh, when and where in our environment are we going to do that so you might just say for simple sake um well i'm going to do it in my room as soon as i get up and make my bed maybe you already make your bed right well that's going to function as a nice prompt for you to actually introduce that seed habit and you know the 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 thing with this which brings us on to the next point is that 
Um, there's always this kind of constellation of things affecting our behavior, right? And the and the question then for us is, okay, what is enabling our our behavior or our desired behavior, and what is limiting it? And I talk about this in terms of constraints. So there might be stuff in our environment, say, that um, enables it, like say floor space. If I want to do squats, there might also be, or maybe there's something limited, right? Maybe I don't have the floor space. Um, so the question for us in the design phase is, okay, how can I design this? Uh, this uh, how can I design in relationship to this cornerstone with this seed habit to make it as likely as possible, right? I can never guarantee it, but I can introduce these pre pressures. I can remove these other pressures and I can make it more and more likely, more and more probable. So as I said, with the mobility, you might just be clearing space um, and ensuring there's nothing in that space that's going to disrupt it. Um, and this is true for any behavior, right? There's always this constellation of constraints um, that are, say, involved in the production of the behavior, even if we don't acknowledge it, right? Right now, me and you are having this conversation. There's things that are enabling it, things that are maybe limiting or frustrating it, but we've designed our environment in such a way that it makes it you know, optimal for this conversation. And the same you want to do with respect to your habits. So to keep it simple, you know, you want to ask, okay, how do I make it as small as possible? And how do I make it as easy as possible? All right. And by that, you mean, how do I design my environment to support this uh, habit? Hmm. That's interesting. The efficiency of that behavior. So you're kind of, you've heard of this nudge theory. You've heard of the, the, yeah. the you know, nudge theory being uh, used. Is there any element of that, of, of their workings, of their writings, of, of that approach in what you're talking about? A hundred percent insofar as I think we're, reflecting on the ability of uh, your environment to pull you in a particular direction. What, okay. what is maybe a bit different is some of the kind of philosophical framing, which would be a bit too much to get into. Um, but it goes a bit back to those ideas of, I was saying in the eco-behavioral design, we emphasize the relationality. And then I use the the notion of the seed to, to really capture that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in the nudge theory, as I understand it, and maybe I'm less than familiar than I should be, um, we still have this kind of conception of the individual as this um, in this kind of atomistic agent, right, separated from the world. Um, and even though I suppose primary to that understanding coming from behavioral economics and that is this recognition that we're not rational. And mm -hmm. that's important, right? Because, you know, it's important to see that, okay, we are capable of a certain amount of rationality, but we're always embedded in this rich kind of um, ecology of meaning and relationships that's sub-rational or post-rational or something, right? But Chaotic, it's, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, Okay. So yeah, no, I just wanted. To, I just wanted to, to clarify because because what you're talking about is 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 setting up our environment in a way that we are prompted towards those more uh, to set up an environment where the choices we want to make are more efficient and easier to do than yeah. those that we don't want to do. And we're removing those constraints or those barriers or those limitations to us doing it while at the same time having those cornerstones that are going to support us to to do it. And it's really it's it's, it's almost like pre-contemplation when you're talking about change that you are saying, OK, I'm 
I'm pre-contemplation and now I'm getting towards the contemplation stage. So I'm going to think about this. I'm going to think about the habit. I'm going to think not just about how much I need to force myself into this and, and to achieve it as quickly as possible, but actually go the opposite and say, I'm going to set up my environment for sustainability of this habit. And I'm going to give myself permission to ground myself into it, to uh, to make sure that those environmental constraints are removed and those supports are present. And then I'm going to give myself permission to start off slow, almost embarrassingly slow as we as we get into it. Um, so the 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 three C's are the the cornerstone habit, the constraints, and you mentioned the third one there. Yeah, the change. So the idea of change is just thinking about the relationship between constraints and cornerstones, right? So we want to, in a sense, use. So we have a kind of a inconsistent energy d- d- dispersed across the week, right? And we want to use points where we have um, maybe. Say say if I'm at the weekend and I know I have something hard to do on a Monday, for instance, I can use my energy at the weekend to kind of better support myself come Monday to do that thing, right? So the idea is maybe I have a cornerstone on a Sunday evening where maybe I, um, I don't know, finish my weekly cook and, you know, then I can use that and think, okay, what are the constraints that are going to help me on Monday morning? And... Um, you use that opportunity to, in a sense, set up your environment for the Monday morning. Yeah. Right? So the idea there is you're just chaining constraints to cornerstones to enable the uh, habit and make it more likely on the Monday morning. Yeah, I've, I, I've only recently started, well, in the last two months, consistently cycling to work. And it's a 20 a 20 kilometer cycle over as a 20 back. But I find that Sunday evening for about an hour, there is... Literally what you described there is that that point where you're packing your bags, you're making sure your clothes are out, you have enough food there. So because I'll tell you, Monday morning pork and Sunday evening pork are two completely different creatures. (laughs) Monday morning pork is like, yeah, I'll take the car. That 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 Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. that comfortable seat is much more appealing. Um, But where you have those um, those prompts set up where you have that um, that chaining and those constraints removed and you have those cornerstones set up in your environment it definitely becomes a lot lot easier um, right. and yeah. the, i mean the, the thing is you know like i said before and i was, i think it's it's it is worth repeating right we can't guarantee behaviors in the future we can just make them more probable so the question is always how do i make it as probable as possible knowing that i will be in a certain say state of mind or frame of mind at that point mm-hmm. um <clears throat> so yeah really you're starting to like as you kind of practice this more and more and I, i'm sure you, you know you're well versed in this at least as a practice in terms of like designing your environment to support um, certain behaviors you start to relate to your environment very differently right you start to see it as you also i think you see yourself as a reflection of it a lot more mm-hmm. and then you become much more say it becomes a bit more sacred in a way right it's not just you and this environment it's you and your environment and mm-hmm. um you know my hope my whole kind of emphasis for really pushing this eco behavioral design is that i actually think that's really important right because it's important to see you as
protective of your environment because the more and more we do that, the more and more we see our ecological embedding and become sensitive to things, say, even beyond just our four walls, right? We're also a reflection of our society, our ecology, our environment, uh, you know, writ large. Um, but I think engaging that practice is almost the first step in starting to identify with those broader and broader sets of conditions. Okay. Um, but I'm getting a bit philosophical here. I'll pull it back <laughs> into the to the phases. Go um, back into what so what's the next phase that we have? Or is that this phase finished? That's phase two, right? So we have the cornerstones, the constraints, and the chains. And the the, the next phase, and I think it's also a really important one, is um, I guess they're all important in a sense, but it's um the propagation phase. And this again kind of drawing from the garden. Um, metaphor um, and it says okay once you have your seed habit once you have your understanding of your cornerstones and your constraints and so on um, th there's still a certain kind of period of time within which everything needs to be treated in a certain way right so I think the analogy of the seed is helpful here again because you know a seed is fragile right it suggests a certain care is necessary and in the phase of propagation, we're a bit like, say, planting the seed in the window box and leaving it on the windowsill. We're not yet planting it outside, right? We don't just go outside. We don't just go out with our, say, lettuce seed and stick it in the garden and hope for the best, right? We have to bring a certain amount of care to it. And we should think about our behavior and it's changing very similarly, right? When we're making these changes, at the initial phases, at least, we need to be very safe to how we approach that. And the, the idea of propagation is just this emphasis, emphasis on fragility, emphasis on being sensitive in this way, emphasis on patience and care, right? And letting the thing unfold in the way that it will unfold if you let it. Um, so what, we, what I'll normally advocate is um, if you're going about this change, that that is embarrassingly small and that is say now properly located that you do so um in a way that that reflects all of this fragility and everything so you want to um i suppose go about the change as i think about it as like commit to less than you feel capable of right so if you if you think okay i feel like i could imp i feel like okay i've been doing my 10 squats this week and now i'm ready for 100 squats right okay. you're like okay i've made the change kind of pull yourself back right and say okay oh okay i feel capable like i could continue this change with 100 squats kind of pull yourself back and say no 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 that's that's not going to be helpful right that's not going to help me change given your initial burst of enthusiasm given the way things have, have been going don't rely on that as a good indicator of it being successful yet right so you want to kind of pull it back a bit and say okay i feel capable of this much i'm going to commit to a lot less right and that's going to help that propagation um so if it's you were doing five squats maybe move to 20 squats right but don't go to 50 or don't go to 100 squats don't go tiring yourself out you know you should still feel very very capable of it without it without it actually generating any say feelings of resistance or or or, or restraint or whatever and why do we why do we do it at that phase mark why why not go for the 50 or 100 
So the idea is that over the longer term, we're, we're trying to change our identity, right? And our identities tend to be highly ingrained around uh, certain patterns in our life. They reflect it. They motivate it. Say motivate it. They, they kind of lead to certain um, behaviors. Because we identify with certain things, we're more inclined towards certain behaviors, but also because of our inclination towards certain behaviors, we identify with those things, right? So there's this kind of circularity. And if we, we, we all have this kind of capacity for exploration, we're kind of allowed these little exploratory, say, um, um, in a sense, in a sense where we're, we're organized to be playful and to explore and that's not really challenging to the structures of identity that already exist, right? They, they kind of permit, per, permit that. But when you start making serious change and it's starting to be acknowledged by those structures, if you will, mm-hmm. you start to generate a lot of resistance because all of a sudden now it's going, oh, now the real change is happening. Is this, oh, is this what I think it is? You know, I thought we were just exploring here and then other kind of forces come in and you start to kind of pull back from that initial effort. Um, and we, I think we've all recognized this, right. And we, we'll even see it in our relationship with other people where you actually start making a change and, you know, it starts to kind of show up and all of a sudden we start to get a bit antsy. Right. And then we kind of go, oh, actually it was safer just to stay the same. Yeah. And we retreat back to that, uh, to, to that safe. You're talking about so many of my friends as they start dating and they right. move towards that, 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 the classic one where you start to go oh wait hold on a second i'm i'm falling for this person do i retreat or do i go headlong into this yeah 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 and it's the same with the with the habit at that point in time i think it is and you know when we talk about habit change being easy i mean that insofar as like we can approach it skillfully and there and there and and it is easy under those conditions but actually it's really hard right generally and it's hard because staying the same is actually easy or staying the same is safe, even if it's not leading to things we desire. Right? It's um, it's it's in a sense uh, less threatening than it would be otherwise to to actually maybe go about it or make some effort to change. Um, but then a question comes in in the propagation phase. Right. How do I kind of know when I'm ready to make make a leap? Um and I talk about the the phase four as that leap, right? The planting out, right? It's a bit like going from the windowsill to the garden. And this is a tricky one. And I don't think there's like a, a clear answer on this, but you will start to notice things in yourself, I, I feel. And this is certainly my experience. And I've done a lot of kind of um, autoethnographic stuff where I'm observing my own changes and writing about them. And something that shows up quite a bit for me is you you really start to identify with the person who has changed, right? So you're no longer um, you're no longer coming from the place of I want to change, but you're coming from the place of oh now there is no more resistance because I've made a certain change, and and it's reflected in my identity, right? So when you start to live from that place a bit more, and you mm-hmm. I don't know if this is clear enough, but you'll start to notice it in how you think and how you start to relate to the world and in how you start to plan for the future, right? The the change that you've made now is just factoring into the, into your plans for the future in a way that it mightn't have been previously. It's a really good way of putting it. 
Um, I think of it physically when you start an exercise plan and then the days that you don't exercise, your body starts to feel uncomfortable on the days where you haven't done a bit of movement. Um, And that you're, you're saying, well, no, I'm a fit person or this is what I do every day. And your body is saying, hey, something's missing here. Whereas before you were uncomfortable when you started exercising or when you started. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. You know, that that feeling. And it sounds like this there's psychological resistance and then there's that psychological acceptance that, you mm-hmm. know, we talk about psychological flexibility. Um, but yeah, tell me more about about this. Do you have any examples? You mentioned that you did some some uh, kind of self change. Was there any particular ones that jumped out at you that you felt were were a good example? Yeah, of yeah. That? One I did last year and I was just messing around with it. Um, but it, it was probably the most substantial one. Uh, I gave it a name. <laughs> it was uh, growing a yogi, right? So I, I'd for a long time practiced yoga. I practiced yoga probably for 12 or 13 years, but very inconsistently, you know, extremely inconsistently. And um, always felt frustrated by my inconsistency with it. Um, and yeah, I really kind of resolved to going about it in in the way that I'm advocating now and then just paying attention to a lot of the stuff that came up for me there and that's the thing I noticed most right it was like um it was like these boundaries were coming into being that weren't there previously right so if I was so I was practicing practicing ashtanga I've since moved moved my practice but I don't know if you know much about yoga but Ashtanga is a is a is a strain within um, yoga. It's a kind of sub practice or whatever you might call it. Um, but it, it has a particular kind of flavor. It's, it's you know it, it sounds like when you say a, a particular flavor, all I can think of it sounds like a lad from County Longford talking about a Stanger bar when we were younger, <laughs> and that has a particular flavor. And it used to kill me. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> if you say it again all i can hear is is a is a an eight-year-old from longford uh talking about his 10p bar but continue sorry <laughs> yeah, i wonder how, how how it's caught on down there um <laughs> it's uh it, 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 it's quite intense right and it's like there's a series of moves that you go through every day um and you know it's quite uh say stubborn in that sense right it's very traditional um but what I noticed when I was going through, you know, the initial phases and all and all the rest, um, and this coming into this kind of transition was like, where, when am I ready to actually start kind of committing more wholeheartedly? Mm-hmm. Was this very obvious identification insofar as I started to see myself as a Nashtanga practitioner and not other forms of practitioner, right? So when I was listening to podcasts or something, I would see these boundaries being erected, like pulling back from things that people said that didn't relate to Ashtanga or only be interested in Ashtanga, right? Rather been, than being more diffusive and interested in a big kind of a, a larger swath of, of things. Um, you pull the flag on, you put the jersey on. Exactly. Was, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a good way to think about it, right? It's like, okay, what have you pulled the jersey on? Are you now are you now part of the team? Yeah. And, you know, when you are part of that team, it, it, it is reflective of this kind of deeper identification that's 
more than just now I'm committed to a habit, right? You have this kind of portability. You don't need all the supporting environmental constraints. Obviously, they're still helpful, but you have this kind of portability where now you bring the habit with you, right? If I change my environment in the morning, I'm actually confident that I will reorganize my environment to suit my habit and not my habit to suit my environment, if if, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this robustness that goes with the habit that... That, that even in the absence of those environmental supports, like you have, the, you know, that that poem that James Heaney wrote that's read out at every wedding called Scaffolding. Um, oh. No, oh, you haven't been in enough weddings. And he <laughs> talks about scaffolding going up and how the uh, is scaffolding, yeah, it is scaffolding. And uh, how like a, a Heaney poem, right? it, it is a Heaney poem and it's about uh, about building a relationship and how it's it needs to be nurtured and sustained. And behind the scaffolding isn't is something that isn't very attractive. But then when it's removed, you can see that that everything is is good behind it. Usually at that stage of the wedding, I'm 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 zonked. Out, <laughs> but it, and, and, you know, your your time is up when scaffolding comes out. But you're saying I, I love that. So you're saying that, you know, that that habit has been has reached a, a level of robustness when you when you pull on the jersey and you identify with that. So if you're if you're somebody who's who's running that you see yourself as a runner and that, you know, that it, when you're going outside of your normal routine at home, where you don't have your runners, you're still itching to get out for a run when you're on holidays, when you're with friends, when you're with somebody else, that you're probably starting to hijack conversations by talking mm. about your 5K mm. times. But you're you're identifying yourself as a runner uh, mm. rather than somebody who runs or you you have that that commitment towards it. Um, and I, it's it's the the breaking down of those in the absence of those environmental supports that the habit maintains, that's when you know you're on to a winner. Yeah, I, I think like we could talk forever and, all, and probably always come up with better ways of recognizing this or, you know, more sensitive ways. And, you know, for different people, it's kind of probably going to be different. But I, I think if we're looking for generalities, that's a good place to look, right? You do have this sense of robustness and portability and, you know, the sense of, um, living from a different place all of a sudden, right? And and you'll see that reflected in what you're interested to, what you're paying attention to. Um, obviously, this has all really interesting implications for how it feeds back into social structures and so on, but that's probably for a different conversation. But I think there's, so there's, there's an important thing also to acknowledge is that even if that is the case, Right. It's always in this reciprocal relationship with the constraints and with the environment. And even if it's portable for a certain period of time, it mightn't it mightn't be portable forever. Right. And I think that's also important to acknowledge. Right. I don't think there's anybody, even the most even, you know, even professional athletes who we kind of valorize in these terms and we say, OK, look, they're so committed to this thing or whatever. I think it's a it's an ongoing thing with them, right, to constantly reorganize their environments to support certain sorts of outcomes and so on. And, you know, we need to be kind of kind to ourselves in those regards. Like if we're doing the thing that we want to be doing and edging in the direction that we want to be edging in um, over the longer term, 
you know, falling off the wagon is n- is not a big deal at all, right? And we need to be kind of gentle with ourselves in those terms, and always just coming back, right? So, I think um, I have an analogy I came up with a few years ago, and I don't know how I have never actually tried this on the public. So. <laughs> that is the time. So, right? Imagine we're a boat, right, and we're in this dock, and we have a, a hull, right, and um, we're a bit like, say, when we start out and we haven't done all the stuff that we're talking about and we just go out um, into the ocean, and you know, the equivalent being we just going out into our 40 minutes every day mobility exercise. Um, we're a bit like a boat without any ballast, right? There's no water in the hull. And when we get out in the ocean, we get tossed around we get thrown around and we can't we can't really see like you know what why am i not being successful here i'm just you know I, I don't have what it takes we think it's something got to do with us we think it's something got to do with um, our skills as a as a driver or whatever the case may be as a captain um but you know i, I like to think imagine like we're this little boat right and someday we figure out oh we've got a hull and we've got a ballast and like we start going oh if i just kind of like drive around here in the uh, sail around here in the in the in the in the dock for a little bit and fill up my ballast you know getting water into this hole um and then i go out on the ocean oh like all of a sudden i'm a bit more stable i can take on a bit more um and then you something clicks right it's like okay i need more resources i need more stability in my hull before i'm actually coming out into the ocean and making that big commitment and i think the planting out is like that right it's like okay we make this initial jaunt into the ocean and we see how we're fixed right am i good to go am i ready for this um and without being just too easy on ourselves and giving us ourselves an easy time we kind of you know assess it uh, as objectively as possible and say um okay if this is going to, you know, if this is really frustrating me and there's too much resistance to this and it's not going to work, okay, maybe I need to pull back and, you know, go back into the dock, gather up a bit more water, you know, sail around, make it a bit easier again. And then maybe I can venture out again in a, in a, in a week's time or whatever and see if I'm ready to to take on the challenge of the ocean. Um, and I certainly found that in the, in, the, in the example where I was doing the Ashtanga. Like, it's a very intense thing. And I... I, I was going out and I was making this these very strong commitments and I kept having to come back in, right, and say, I, I'm actually, you know, this is so unenjoyable for me <laughs> that there's no way I could commit to it. And I did it five or six times, you know, and eventually I was just like, okay, Ashtanga is not for me. Like, it's just obviously not yeah. for me. But what I have done is maintain my yoga practice and I still commit to it every day. But what is and what is important is that I've just maintained that practice. I find that, you know, just the routine of doing it and just keeping my body open enough for me and the sports I play and the things that I do is 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 enough for me, right? And mm-hmm. and and what I learned through making that commitment and redesigning and going through the various phases over and over again was um, where I where I'm at with yoga and where I'd like to be at with yoga. And that is, it feels like a, you know, a fundamental change in my identity where now I have this commitment to this thing, which is maybe not what I envisioned at the start, but it's actually more suited, right? It's, 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 it, it, it's better situated in the ecology of things that I do, that it kind of supports them in a way that maybe Ashtanga wasn't or wouldn't have. Um, 
there's a, one, one idea I'd, I talk about a bit and we didn't include it here, but it, it could well have been is, is the idea of native habits or native behaviors. And okay, what's that? So often when you're setting out to make a change, right, you might you might envision somebody else's having made this change and say to yourself, "Whoa, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to to do that, right? Or I'd like to commit to that. And, you know, that's a really good starting point. If you see somebody else and you kind of resonate with that and you say, oh, I'd love to kind of absorb that, um, you know, you have this sense of, OK, uh, that is probably a good thing to say to to maybe start thinking about taking on but a lot of the time people come and say you know you should do this or you know what would be good for you this right and you don't have any say intrinsic desire for it you don't you don't have any like real strong say want within yeah. yourself for it yeah but yes you kind of go about trying to make it happen um the idea of a native habit really is a kind of say using the garden analogy again is a is a kind of parallel with the idea of of a native plant um where you know the conditions are already right for a certain kind of plant to flourish and when we're thinking about our behaviors right a lot of the time we're committing to things that the conditions aren't good for in the first place and then we're wondering about okay why was i not successful in that change right because when 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 i make a change to my mobility right or you make the change to your mobility we might actually be making that change for very different reasons like my mobility might reflect something about myself say feeling i don't know um insufficient in a certain you know capacity and therefore actually the the mobility the change I'm making is more related to, you know, some sort of feeling of insufficiency, whereas your mobility might come from a totally different or your desire to be more mobile might come from a totally different place or space. Right. So the actual things, the conditions within which we're introducing this simple change are not are never the same. So when we're thinking about behavior change for ourselves, it's just an interesting thing to reflect on. Right. Do I do I actually want this for myself? And if you don't, maybe you can still make it happen, but it's going to be a lot of work. You know, think about think about the seed, think about the conditions. What are the conditions here that would allow something to be introduced and make it probably more successful? Mm. I love your power of analogy and I love the power of connecting these things together. Um, the the, the 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 analogy of the boat worked. I will give you that. That's it was true. really yeah, it was really good. That's I had true. this this image of of a of a boat pulling out, and I could definitely see where where you're going from steady waters to more turbulent waters and removing those environmental supports. Um, you 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 know you would talk you would in behavior analysis terms you would talk about prompt fading and fading out prompts and fading out though that scaffolding for for a new skill that you might be mm, teaching or okay. for maintaining a habit. So there's real parallels there as well. Um, I love, I really appreciate the the Ashtenga uh, story as, as well and the, that personal reflection on it. Because for me anyway, I, I, I can start to map so much of what you've been talking about to so many of those things that I that I want to change or I've often said I'd like to change, mm. but maybe have never activated them in, in a way that I probably should have. And I think many people listening to this would find that that same uh, 
that same thing happening for them as well. Um, so look, that was that was incredible. It was really, really incredible. And I'm sure there's lots of people that have been listening to this that had listened to the first podcast and wanted to hear more uh, from you. And for those of you that haven't heard Mark before, uh, Mark, where can they get in touch with you if they'd like to, to connect with you? Yes, the easiest place is, well, directly you can email me. That's um, ecobehavedesigns at gmail or get in touch on Instagram if you're into that kind of thing. That's uh, ecobehavioraldesigns on Instagram um, or Twitter, Mark M. James. Um, I've been off social media the last little while, but I'll probably return to it soon enough. And uh, yeah, I mean, if people are interested in working with me or people just want to share ideas or if people just want a bit of uh, advice, I mean, I'm happy to do any of that um, or, you know, just want to whatever. <laughs> Shoot Mark, the shit on, on behavioural change. Shoot the shit on behavioural change. But we'll have you back, no doubt. Uh, hopefully we'll catch you before you jet off to foreign shores whenever this this uh, this all calms down. But Mark, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I know from Kate's perspective, she probably would have 101 different questions to ask you. I'll tell her to email them to you as we go through. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for joining us on the Behavioural Vaccine again. Thanks, Boric. My pleasure. My pleasure.